In addition to trying to have some fun on Labor Day weekend, you know, to spend some time with family and friends, I also try to be mindful that Labor Day is about much more than a three-day weekend, symbolically marking the end of summer. The first Monday in September was set apart as a time to celebrate the labor movement's role in securing workers' rights. In the late 19th century, an increasing number of states were officially recognizing Labor Day as a holiday, culminating in Congress declaring Labor Day a federal holiday in 1894. And the struggles that Labor Day celebrates are far from over. Although we might wish that it were otherwise, uh, I invite you to consider that it's important to be honest that our current economy is not designed to allow everyone to be well paid to do their dream job. That's sort of a lie that we uh, tell people sometimes. Instead, to borrow a term from Karl Marx, the vast majority of humans earn a living through alienated labor. Work that is not personally personally fulfilling, but that one must do anyway to hopefully have at least a basic minimum of food and shelter. Now, there's a whole other discussion to be had. I've addressed it in various ways before. For those of us who do love our work and do not feel alienated from our labor, yet need to draw boundaries for our long-term health uh, in order to make time for our families. But I'd like to actually set aside those concerns for this morning. Because it can be easy to forget how much we as a society owe to organized labor. As one popular bumper sticker says, from the people who brought you the weekend. (laughs) Because historically, many people used to spend 12 or more hours a day working for six or even seven hour days a week. But in the early 19th century and continuing for over 100 years, working hours in America were gradually reduced, basically cut in half, according to most accounts. The labor movement pushed back against the exploitation of workers through union organizing and other collective actions. But here's another oft-forgotten twist. In the late 19th century, extrapolating from the successes that had already happened with the labor movement, many of the best economists and public intellectuals, you can see it, this widely um, speculated about, they regularly predicted that well before the 20th century, not the 21st century, well before the 20th century ended, a golden age of leisure would arise. We were all enjoying that golden age of leisure, right? when no one would have to work more than two hours a day. Long before the four-day, what's it called, the four-day work week or whatever, uh, that's uh, old news, was supposed to be old news. Let me just read that again one more time. I really want to invite you on this Labor Day weekend to consider the implications of this, that in the late 19th century, extrapolating from the successes of the labor movement, many of the best economists regularly predicted that well before the 20th century ended, a golden age of leisure would arise in which no one would have to work more than two hours a day. For those forced to earn a living through alienated labor, working only two hours a day or for a total of 10 hours a week or even just a little bit more than that, or, you know, a 20-hour work week is actually, about, 20 hours is what most psychologists have found is about how much alienated labor you can do and not really be burned out at, afterward. 
Uh, so working you know, 20 hours a week or less of alienated labor would mean having time to actually pursue the American dream of life, having a life of liberty, having free time to actually pursue happiness instead of returning home from work too exhausted to do anything but try to rest briefly before dragging yourself back to your alienated labor the next day. Now, labor activists did help secure a five-hour work week. I mean, a five-day work week. That's the people who brought you the weekend. And in some industries, even a six-hour work day. But starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s, the trend of shortening work hours reversed. A new emphasis arose on this perceived need to grow the economy through perpetually increasing consumer demand. So we find ourselves working more and more to buy more and more stuff and then not having any free time to actually enjoy that stuff that is piling up in our yards and basements and garages, much less spend time with our family and friends. Fast forwarding to today, you know, we're actually in the 21st century, well after that, uh, you know, well after the 20th century. Uh, We know that the labor rights movement has continued to lose ground on many fronts. Uh, We know that many of us work not a 10-hour work week, but a 10- or 12-hour work day, building to a 50- or 60-hour or more work week. And ironically, as our collective productivity has grown at work um, from has grown 72, 72.2%. Our collective productivity has grown that much over the past four decades. Hourly compensation has grown 9.2%. So our productivity, 72.2%. Our compensation, 9.2%. With the decline of the labor rights movement, many corporations perceive themselves as responsible not to their workers, but solely to their stockholders. And at the same time that labor rights for human beings are being rolled back, Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United have been defending the rights of corporate personhood, making the playing field even more unequal. If anyone is curious, I will readily grant that organized labor has had, its, has had a sizable share. I wouldn't say its fair share, but it's had a sizable share of corruption in its history. Uh, but overall, the balance has shifted way away from workers' rights and toward corporate rights. To briefly name one vision for what we could choose to move to as a society, I invite you to hear Article 23 of the UN Declaration for Human Rights, which challenges us on four points. The first is that everyone has a right to work. The free choice of employment to just and favorable conditions of work and to protections against unemployment. The second is that everyone without any discrimination has the right to equal pay for equal work. Three, everyone who works has the right to just and favorable remuneration, uh, ensuring for themselves and their family an existence worthy of human dignity and supplemented, if necessary, by other means of social protection. And finally, everyone has the right to form and join trade unions for the protection of their interests. Now, all that being said, before you start thinking that the title of the sermon should be Get Out Your Pitchforks, uh, what I'm actually building to, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, what I'm really building to is an invitation for us on this Labor Day to just briefly consider how our mission statement here at UUCF relates to the history of the labor rights movement. As you can see on the front cover of this and every order of service, our tagline here is Spirituality, Community, Justice. 
And the expanded statement is that we join together to encourage spiritual growth, build beloved community, and act for peace and justice. And in particular, beyond the obvious phrase, act for peace and justice, that middle phrase, beloved community, is an allusion to the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who helped popularize this vision of beloved community. He didn't coin it. It actually comes from a philosopher named Josiah Royce that he was inspired by. But in addition to all the ways that Dr. King talked about his dream of beloved community at its best, he also reminded audiences that the greatest hindrances, what keeps us, what holds us back from really authentically building beloved community, it isn't just racism alone, it is the interlocking triple threats of racism, materialism, and militarism. So on this Sunday before Labor Day, I'd like to spend just a few minutes reflecting on Dr. King's journey from civil rights alone to human rights. For the ways in which his increasing focus on both racial justice and economic justice can inform and inspire us today. And in tracing the arc of Dr. King's life, I think it's uh, significant to remind ourselves that despite the indelible mark that he's left on our country, on our society, on the world, his public ministry actually lasted for barely more than a decade. Um, From uh, barely more than a decade, from 1956 until his assassination in 1968, at the far too young an age of 39. When King was killed, he was a year older than I am now. Dr. King's strong commitment to economic justice was clear at the end of his life. When he was killed in Memphis, he was in town helping lead the Memphis sanitation workers' strike. And later that month, he was scheduled to lead a poor people's march, a poor people's campaign to protest in Washington, D.C. But those twin themes of racial and economic justice were also there from the beginning. Consider, the name is often uh, shortened, but the full name of that famous 1963 protest was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. If you go back and look at the archival photos and footage of that march, you'll see not only signs that say end segregated um, rules in public schools and we demand voting rights now, you'll also see tons of signs demanding full employment and lots of signs saying we march for jobs for all now. And in King's famous I Have a Dream speech, we often remember that part about his dream of a future where children can play together across color lines. But there was a lot more to that speech. I'll quote just one excerpt. He said, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note that all would be guaranteed unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on that promissory note. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. 
Or as King would later say, what does it profit a man to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee? And here's a vital point. If you continue to trace the logic of how King's speeches continued to evolve, he increasingly followed a model similar to the one that Thomas Jefferson had followed centuries earlier. Jefferson did not declare our independence from the King of England based on the reasoning of British common law. He based our freedom on what he called self-evident truths, on certain unalienable rights. Likewise, more than merely seeking to get laws passed by civil government, as important as that is, uh, King also increasingly came to see this struggle against poverty and racism as part of a worldwide human rights movement that supersedes mere laws. As the saying goes, an unjust law is no law at all. We you use call this our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, it's just in there. It is your inherent worth and dignity. Part of what's also um, perhaps most significant to me about King's life is that his path to becoming a civil rights leader was neither obvious nor inevitable or even predictable. And one theme I want us to explore a few different times this fall from a few different angles is how people of power and privilege come to be in authentic solidarity with oppressed groups. Specifically in the life of MLK, although the Reverend Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., his father, was born into an exploitative sharecropper system, by the time that King Jr. was born in 1929, his father was a minister in Atlanta who was doing fairly well financially. King Jr. could have chosen to follow, follow his father's footsteps and spent his life as the minister of, at, in a fairly well-paying pulpit. As, but at, and as his father had before him, you know, he'd attended and done well at the historically black Morehouse College. He went on to earn a master's divinity degree at, the predominantly white, uh, at a predominantly white seminary in 1951 before going on to earn a Ph.D. at Boston University. So he had all the credentials to just take that pulpit and, and coast. But one of the ways King began to discern a call to a movement greater than himself is through his education, through this sort of consciousness raising and increasing awareness of brokenness in our society. So in 1951, that same year that he graduated seminary, he told his then-girlfriend, one Coretta Scott, that he was not pro-capitalist like his father, and he had no ambitions to wealth. In his ringing turn of phrase, he said that capitalism takes necessities from the masses to give lures to, lucres to the classes. At the same time, I should be clear that King also criticized extreme socialism and collectivism. He said, now if you go too far that way, it neglects the ways that life is individual and personal. In many ways, King's maturing views can be seen as moving toward what is sometimes called the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. Profit motive, it's still in there. Profit is still real, still a major factor. But instead of seeing profit, um, profit for shareholders as the only bottom line, financial gain should be balanced with people, with labor rights, and planet environmental sustainability. That triple bottom line of people and planet and profit is one vision of what a 21st century labor movement can look like. 
Now, there's a lot more to be, say, to be said about all of this, but my hope on this Labor Day weekend has mostly been to give us a few frameworks for thinking about these issues moving forward. That as we begin to understand how much our relationship to work has actually changed over the years, that move from a 12-hour workday and a six to seven-hour, a six to seven-day work week to an eight-hour workday and a 40-hour work week, that we can begin to see if it's changed in the past, the way it is is not the way it has to be in the future. That can open up our thinking that things can continue to change for the better. Perhaps, too, like Dr. King so many years ago, maybe you are beginning to feel the inkling of a call within you to join some cause that is greater than yourself and your needs. Or maybe you're feeling a call to join or increase your commitment to building the beloved community, whatever that looks like for you here at UUCF and in the larger community and world. Got lots of time. I'm going to tell you more. One of the things that is amazing about our Unitarian Universalist tradition is that we have six sources. You know, we have just this abundance of riches that we can draw from. You know, you look at this um, mobile in the in the atrium and think of you know, all these rich traditions from all the world's religions to modern science that we can draw from. But I think part of what you can miss potentially, the other, the other side of that, potentially even the shadow of that, is that we're not going necessarily deeply into any one tradition. We do have some ways you can do that and you know, through the various groups we have that meet in the chapel on Sunday mornings. So there are various ways you can go deep. But like to give a point of contrast, you know, I spent um, nine years as a minister in progressive co- Christian congregations and all of those congregations that I serve use what is called a lectionary. And so that we weren't, uh, you know, it's great that I can draw from any, you know, any source, right, on a Sunday morning. You might come and I'm preaching from a Buddhist sutra one, one day and from the latest issue of Science Magazine the next and, you know, all variety. But those congregations actually have what's called a lectionary so that every, there was a cycle of three years. So in year A, we were all the readings, you were always getting a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, B was always from the Gospel of Mark. C was from the Gospel of Luke. John was kind of spread around. I didn't really understand why there were just a year D and just have a four-year cycle, but they didn't ask me when they were doing the, you know, the consultation on common texts. And there were, you know, other readings linked to that, so there'd be a Hebrew Bible reading and a Psalm reading. And so over the course of three years, you were going through these regular cycles of readings, and as you were in a congregation for year upon year, there was this sort of rhythm of the year around, you know, so studying and trying to say, how might we live like Jesus today, for example. Um, so I invite you to consider what that might look like for you. So it doesn't have to, you know, what might your lectionary look like? What traditions, you know, are there certain books or poems? And, and I bring this up today because I think it's significant that we have that line, beloved community, as the middle part of our, of our mission statement. And that that's potentially an invitation for us to say, what is it about Dr. King's life that we want to say, you know, when he was, you know, cut down so early, you know, assassinated at age 39, he left an unfulfilled, you know, vision of, of for America and for our world. And so by choosing that phrase, beloved community, we're saying we want to help make that vision and that dream, turn that dream into deeds, make that vision a reality. That are there perhaps, there may be other examples from other traditions, but might there be pieces of King's life and work that you, that we might 
might want to revisit annually. So, you know, to maybe every April 4th. So, you know, on, on April 4th, it, he didn't know it at the time, but exactly one year before he would, was to be killed on April 4th, 1968, on April 4th, 1967, he ascended into the pulpit at Riverside Church and gave by far the most radical speech he had ever given and would ever give. And so, you know, might it be something that we could choose as a congregation to say every April 4th, we're going to read that Riverside speech and reflect on that and say, you know, what. And so to begin to kind of inculcate that into who we are so that there become words and phrases that we can reach for. And, and there might be other speeches. If you haven't seen it, Cornell West has edited a book called The Radical King with, uh, you can buy that big, thick book, Testimony of Hope. It's excellent, but a, a much slimmer book called The Radical King is available through Beacon Press. It came out about a year ago. That that might be a place for, for us to start or for any of you to start that are interested. That are there speeches? of King that we want to revisit regularly that we, uh, can become perhaps touchstones for us. I'll say two other brief things. One, kind of looking to the future, I think it's, I try to remind myself occasionally that we have, the, there's ways you can already see the, the radical King, the thing, examples like uh, when he published his first book in 1956 called, uh, the, I think it's called The Stride Toward Freedom. It was a book about the Montgomery bus boycott and that's amazing success. You can go back and look at his manuscripts and see all the ways that the final book is a lot less radical than, than the original version that he submitted. So you can see how he changed words and phrases to make it more palatable. But I actually think there are ways we're going to find out how, and so as much as we already know about how Radical King was, in 2027, we're going to get all of the FBI surveillance material of King is going to finally be released. That still hasn't happened yet. So, you know, King was on a list that if we ever had martial law declared in America, he was on the list of people to go arrest immediately. So there's a whole lot more to be said about that in a, in a future sermon. But So we're going to find out a lot more in 2027. Um, so a decade from now forthcoming sermon. Uh, uh, but also looking to the, the past, uh, in a, in, after the benediction, um, we're going to have an invitation when you'll be invited to rise and sing together the postlude we shall overcome. And that's, of course, a, a famous um, civil rights song, but it's particularly poignant because uh, in March 15th, it was March 15th, 1965, when President Johnson addressed the nation and said that he was going to push for a national voting rights bill that became the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He ended that address by saying, we shall overcome. Thereby, thereby getting the President of the United States from the Oval Office signaling his solidarity with the civil rights movement. Uh, on March 17th, two days after that address, 25,000 marchers, including many, many Unitarian Universalists, marched from Selma to Montgomery. That was their third attempt, and they finally marched that time under the protection of the National Guard. So we can make a difference. People in power and privilege, which I know is not, you know, we all have different levels of power and privilege, but you can make a difference. So there are ways that we really can intervene and be in solidarity with um, various oppressed groups. So as you continue from this place and into the week to come, continue your journey in love. 
care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of love, of hope, of joy, of peace, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. I invite you to rise as we prepare to go in peace.